Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, because we're starting all over again, because you guys didn't get it the first time, right? No. No, today is the last sermon in 1 Timothy, but I'm going to be drawing your attention to the first chapter as we, as we begin this morning. Some of you were freaking out, like, not again, he's going to do the whole book over again? No, no. Some of you may have heard of a pastor named Charles Simeon. Now, I've been the pastor of Emmanuel for 18 years. Charles Simeon pastored the same church for 54 years. He preached his first sermon in 1782 at Trinity Church in Cambridge, England. And he stayed there until he died in 1836. And you may think, being the pastor at the same church for 54 years, there would be no problems, there would be no conflict, everything would be a bed of roses. Well, that was not the case. His ministry did not start off very well. As a matter of fact, the congregation did not want him as their pastor. They wanted somebody else. So they were kind of stuck with him. So the first 12 years of his pastorate, was really bad for him. You see, back in those days, people paid for their own pews. Okay, I'm glad you don't do that today, but you paid for your pews, and you could lock your pew so that another person could not sit in your pew. So if you came in this morning and you wanted to sit somewhere, and I can't sit there because it's locked, they would lock their pews back then. Well, the people did not want to come and hear Charles Simeon preach, so during the week, they would lock their pews. And then the people that wanted to come here and preach would come in and they'd have nowhere to sit. So they would have to sit on the floor. They would have to sit in the corners. And so you had all these people sitting in all these weird places. And so Charles Simeon said, you know what, I'm gonna, with my own money, I'm just going to get chairs for these people that are coming. So he, he brought his own chairs in. And that next Sunday he found out that all those chairs were thrown out into the churchyard. So this happened for the first 12 years of his ministry. And Trinity Church was right next to Cambridge College in Cambridge, England. And the college students hated Charles Simeon. And the reason they hated him was because he preached expositional sermons from the Bible and he preached the truth. And they didn't like that. So what they would do when he was preaching is outside the windows, they would yell and scream while he's preaching. They would throw things through the window. And then some records say, historical records say, that they also tried to assault him after church one Sunday. This happened like the first 12 years. You think by then, like, I need to find someplace else to preach. This doesn't sound like a good gig. In 1807, 25 years after he started as a pastor, he lost his voice. Now, I don't know if you guys remember a few years ago when I got laryngitis and I couldn't preach for like four weeks and it was really kind of crazy. I can't imagine losing your voice as a pastor, but he lost his voice for 13 years. He spoke with a raspy voice. And then on a trip to Scotland when he was 60 years old, 13 years later, miraculously his voice just came back. Now you would think, why would a pastor choose to stay at one church for 54 years with all those difficulties? Why not go to where the grass was greener? And there's only one answer I can give. 
And it's the answer Charles Simeon gives in his memoirs. Only by the grace of God. Only God's grace in his life could he do that. He desperately needed God's grace every step of the way. And here's what he said. He said, quote, I've continually had such a sense of my sinfulness as would sink me into utter despair if I had not been assured of the sufficiency and willingness of Christ to save me to the uttermost. There are two things that I have ever desired all these years. One is my own vileness. The other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. His long tenure as a pastor encourages me. And even if you're not a pastor, the question you've got to ask is, how do you stay faithful to the Lord during trials? How do you endure to the end? How do you make it as a Christian? Well, as we conclude 1 Timothy this morning, I want us to remember some of the major themes in the book. So we are going to start in chapter 1. Because Paul sets forth why he wrote this book. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. This is why really Paul sets the stage for the book. I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Timothy, stay in Ephesus. You've got to deal with false teachers. You've got to deal with them urgently. There's, there's problems in the church. There's false teaching. There's heresy. You've got to address it head on. And so that's what Timothy does. But then if you go to chapter 3, so we'll turn to chapter 3 for a moment. This is also the main reason why Paul writes the book. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that you... So that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Timothy, as the pastor, you are to instruct these people on how they are to live as the church. What's a healthy church? And we've looked at that over the past few months. A healthy church doesn't tolerate heresy. It has great biblical discernment. It's based on sound teaching and doctrine. It focuses on the amazing grace of God towards sinners. It takes prayer seriously. If you go back to chapter 2, men are godly leaders, chapter 2. Women are godly examples, chapter 2. Chapter 3, there are qualified elders, there are qualified deacons, the spiritual leaders of the church. Members joyfully submit to one another. Chapter 5, they take care of each other's needs, especially widows. Elders lead preaching and teaching and leading the flock with integrity. We talked about employees and employer relationships. You, you do your work as unto the Lord. You're content. You don't idolize money. You don't have a love of money. And then we looked at the past two weeks. It's a church that glorifies the immortal, invisible, only wise God who dwells in unapproachable light. And so you'd think Timothy or Paul would bring this letter to a close and, and we wouldn't have to hear anything else. But there's two final teachings that Paul wants to drive home to Timothy as he concludes this letter. So, 
We're going to go to the end and we're going to finish this morning. What are these final instructions that Paul has to Timothy as we read chapter 6, verses 17 through 21? So here's our main text for this morning, the very last section. Chapter 6, 17 through 21. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. What are the very last words of this letter? Grace be with you. Grace be with you. Now, why is that so important? We could just pass that over and say, okay, Paul, that's a, that's a cool way to end your letter. You, you, end, you end all your letters with grace be with you. So here's the main point of this passage this morning, and here's kind of how, how Timothy ends. Only God's grace will empower you to faithful obedience. We desperately need God's grace. And it's only God's grace that's going to empower us to faithful obedience. And so as Paul brings this letter to a close, he gives two primary ways, two primary teachings on how we are to remain faithful and obedient to the Lord as God's people. So here's the first. God's people must be generous with his gifts. God's people must be generous. The key word is generous. Now, earlier in chapter 6, Paul addressed the love of money. He addressed the danger of materialism. But he addresses it again, and notice what he says there in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, he's not talking to me. As for the rich in this present age, he's not talking to me. He's talking to rich people. Well, yes, but may I remind you that you and I sitting in this air-conditioned sanctuary are richer than most of the rest of the world. We are rich by comparison with the rest of the world. Based on the most recent data, I checked it this week. Do you know the average annual income in U.S. dollars of a family in India? And I know this because I verified it with our pastor friend over there. What's the annual in U.S. dollars? The annual income of a family of a family not an individual but a family in india anybody want to guess two thousand three hundred eighty dollars annual income and having gone over there multiple times i can attest that that is how they live and it's not uncommon for many americans to spend that much money on summer vacation so before you think paul's not talking to you and me we are wealthy compared to the rest of the world. We are the rich he's talking to. And so how does Paul address our money and finances? What does he say? 
Well, he says there, as for you, the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Don't be haughty. That's kind of a word we don't use often, haughty. Prideful, self-congratulatory, self-exaltation. Sometimes those that have a lot of money can be prone to be arrogant, be puffed up to look down on others. I've got wealth, I've got material possessions, and you little peons don't, so you can kind of get puffed up. Instead of praising God or thanking God that he's blessed you financially. Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18, God gives a warning to the Israelites, especially when they're going into the promised land, the land of milk and honey. He says, beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Don't be haughty or prideful. And then Paul also says, notice what else he says, don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. The uncertainty. Now this doesn't mean that we shouldn't plan for the future. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't invest in 401ks and retirement and that we shouldn't make good investments. That We know from the rest of the Bible we need to be wise in that. But what Paul is saying here is that stuff's uncertain. There's nothing for sure in your financial portfolio. Nothing is guaranteed. Now, plan, be a wise investor, but realize that that is uncertain. Don't put your hope in those things. Put your hope in the living God. James gives us some good wisdom. James 4, 13-14. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town. And spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. If the Lord wills, you may gain wealth. If the Lord wills, you may lose wealth. But don't just presume upon God. Don't put your hope in riches. Don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. Ecclesiastes 5.10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Don't put your hope in riches. Instead, Paul says, what does he say there? At the end of verse 17, But put your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God will provide everything you need, as Cindy reminded us this morning. Not everything you may necessarily want. Philippians 4.19, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So we are to put our hope in God who provides for our needs. And then in verse 18, Paul gives four really brief, quick ways in which we are to be financially responsible, to use our money wisely. Four commands in verse 18. They're to do good. That's number one. They're to be rich in good works. Number two. They're to be generous. Number three. Ready to share. Number four. The bottom line is this, that the key word is generosity. Are you generous with God's gifts? Are are you stingy? Are you coveting? Are you prideful? Or are you generous? Luke 12, 15, Jesus, after telling a parable, said this, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, 
for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Are you marked by generosity? Do you realize the early church was marked by generosity? I mean, that really should be our model. You go back to the book of Acts and you see how the early church responded to one another. In Acts 2, 44 through 45, all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were being generous and meeting needs. Acts 4, 34 through 35, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. In an ideal church, there should not be any needs. The needs should all be met. In an ideal church. Now, I know that's not going to happen because we're, we're sinners and we don't know all the needs, but the, the goal is, is that we should have such generous hearts not just financially, but generous in our time and our talents and our treasures to meet each other's needs with generosity. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. So I could sit here this morning and say, Be generous! Just be generous. And you look at me and say, Thanks, that gives me a lot of help, Pastor Sean. I haven't given you the gospel. The only way you and I can be generous, and I'm raising my hand here, the only way we can be generous is because of God's grace. God's grace will empower you to be generous. Why is that so? Because we are naturally stingy. We are naturally wanting to hold things back for ourselves. The natural inclination of the human heart is not to be generous. It's to be selfish. So that's why we need God's grace to change our hearts, to to work deep in our hearts, to give us a heart of generosity. And the only way we can have a heart of generosity is when we truly understand grace. And where do we see grace manifested the most? In the cross of Christ. We've been singing about it this morning. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich our only motivation to be generous is when we look at the cross let me ask you a question did jesus give 10 percent on the cross i'm glad he did not he gave himself entirely 100 percent. jesus generously gave of himself on the cross to die in our place to absorb god's wrath he left nothing on the table he left nothing back he gave it all jesus paid it half Half to him I owe. No, Jesus paid it all. So our model for generosity is Jesus on the cross and his power in us is the motivation to be generous. We need grace. Only God's grace will enable us to be generous. That's why Paul ends the letter with grace be to you. We must be generous with his gifts, but we need grace the amazing grace and power of God in us to give us the ability to be gracious. So that's command number one that Paul ends this letter with. God's people must be gracious with his gifts. But then the final thing takes us all the way back to the theme that's been running through all 
of 1 Timothy, and really 2 Timothy and Titus. And here's the second. God's people must be guardians of God's truth. Generous with his gifts, guardians of his truth. What does Paul tell Timothy there in verse 20? Oh, Timothy, a term of endearment. Oh, my, my son in the faith, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard the deposit. Now we have to ask the question, what was the deposit that was entrusted to Timothy? What was he supposed to guard? Well, it was probably at his ordination when the elders laid hands on him and said, you're now set apart as a pastor to preach and teach and minister. He's to guard that which has been entrusted to him. First Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in these, for by doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Watch your life, watch your teaching. So, so there are three things, I think, that are the trust that Timothy needs to guard. If you look at First and Second Timothy, you can summarize them by these three things. Number one, Timothy, guard the purity and doctrine of the church. Refute these false teachers. Deal with these false teachers. Get rid of the heresy. Number two, Timothy, keep your own life pure. Be a godly man of an example. Keep your life pure. And number three, Timothy, preach and teach the gospel faithfully. Be a sound theologian, men, as we talked about yesterday. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And that word guard means to guard it faithfully. There's no time to waste. Guard it urgently. Timothy, there's an urgency here. You've got to guard that deposit. You've got to guard that gospel. You've got to guard that truth. You've got to hold on to it. The stakes are too high with these heretics. The stakes are too high with the, the health of the church. Timothy, get busy and guard. Guard the truth. Guard that deposit. 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Timothy, you've got to rightly handle the word of truth. Don't mess around. Guard that trust. And then Paul also says there, avoid the irreverent babbles and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. This crazy talk, this godless chatter. 1 Timothy 4, 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. 2 Timothy 2, 16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Now, now it's interesting here what Paul says. Notice what he says there in verse 20. Avoid this irreverent babble, this godless chatter, these contradictions of what is falsely called, and the ESV has the word knowledge in quotation marks. Does yours have knowledge in quotation marks? Knowledge. What's Paul saying here by calling it knowledge? Well, during this time, there was a heresy that was slowly emerging in Timothy's day, and it came to be full-blown about 100 years later. And it was this idea that these, these leaders had secret knowledge. They were the enlightened ones. They had this secret knowledge and you had to come to them and you had to learn from them and they could open up to you this secret knowledge that only they had. Sounds a lot like televangelists and word faith people today, doesn't it? I've got the mojo. 
I've got the anointing. I've got the secret knowledge. So subscribe to my podcast, buy my book, come to my conference, give money to my ministry because I've got the corner on truth. And if you come to me, I'll share this secret with you, this quote-unquote special knowledge. And Paul says it's false. It's false knowledge. It's not real knowledge at all. As a matter of fact, it's so dangerous. What does Paul say it's going to cause people to do? Verse 21, for by professing it, this false knowledge, some have swerved from the faith. Now, anybody ever had to swerve in traffic? Some days in Sterling is better than others. Seems like some days there's crazy people driving around and you have to swerve. You go to Denver, the front range, and those of us that grew up in Colorado Springs, we know what it means to swerve all the time because those drivers are crazy swerve from the face so here's the idea here's the truth you're swerving you're getting way off way off course you're swerving you're departing some have already done that first timothy 1 19 through 20 holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this some have made shipwreck that's a different analogy some have made shipwreck of their faith among those who are hymenaeus and Alexander, whom i have handed over to satan that they may not learn to blaspheme shipwreck of your faith Swerve from the faith. In 2 Timothy 2, 17-18, And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. So Paul ends this letter with a strong warning to Timothy. Guard that truth. Avoid the falsehoods. It's going to cause people to swerve. It's going to cause people to get off track. Timothy, you stay on the straight and narrow. Rightly divide the word of truth. Guard the truth. So let's ask a question then. If these false teachers were getting into so-called false knowledge, what exactly is true knowledge? Okay, I could spend a month of Sundays on this question. (laughs) What's true knowledge? Let me give you three passages of Scripture to teach us what true knowledge is. John 17, 3. Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. What's true knowledge? Knowing Jesus personally. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge. Of what? Of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Whatever you're watching, whatever you're listening to, whoever you're YouTubing, TikToking, podcasting, whatever, if they're not focused on the glory of God in the face of Christ, who the true Christ is, you're listening to something that's not true. It's true knowledge that focuses on the glory of Christ as he is revealed in the truth of scriptures. So let's ask a very important question. Timothy, you've got to guard the good deposit as a pastor. Sermon's done, right? Because the message is for me. I've got to guard the good deposit, right? Well, yes. But let's ask the question. Am I just the only one responsible for guarding the good deposit? Is Pastor Dustin the only one responsible for guarding the good Who's responsible for guarding the good deposit? And the answer is what? All of us. So let me give you five practical ways you 
can guard the good deposit. And they all start with S because I'm a good Baptist pastor with alliteration. Okay, so it'll help you remember. Here's the first. Saturate, there's the first S, saturate yourself in the Scriptures. Saturate. I want you to think about that word, saturate, marinate, live, dwell, have the Scriptures in you. We talked a lot about this yesterday with our men in our men's conference. Psalm 119, 9-11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have your word in my heart. I'm saturating your word in my life. John 8, 31-32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide, live, dwell in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When you live in the word of Christ, it sets you free. So live, abide, saturate yourself in the word of God. And then Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of God dwell in you. So number one, saturate yourself in the scriptures. That's the only way you're going to guard the truth is if you personally saturate yourself in the Scriptures. Okay, here's number two. And you're doing it right now, so woohoo! Sit under sound preaching. And I thank you that every Sunday you come to sit under sound preaching here at Emmanuel because we try really hard to make sure that what we're preaching from this pulpit is the truth without any wavering. But... I'm not so naive as to think that I'm the only pastor you listen to. Now, as your pastor, let me just say a side note here. I should be the primary person you listen to because I know you. I can minister to you. I can call you on the phone. I can see you at church. I can pray for you. I'm the shepherd of your souls. And so, ultimately, I'm responsible for you as your shepherd. I understand that. But, but I also understand you also listen to podcasts. And you watch YouTube. And you have your favorite people that you may listen to. And that's okay. But I'm just saying, just make sure that the people that you're listening to are sound preachers. I prefer that your primary diet came from your own church, but I also know that a lot of you take in stuff that's out there. And, and, and Pastor Dustin read this earlier. Let me read it again. From Ephesians 4, 11 through 14. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to do what? What has God given us, your leaders, to equip? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. God has specifically gifted pastors and teachers who spend time in this word to equip you so that you don't go to and fro being carried away around by the waves. So if you have a question about the person that you're watching or listening to, please come see me and, I, and I'll give you my thumbs up or my thumbs down just to be honest with you. And some of you have been doing that over the years. Now, I don't want to be the, the, the theological police 
and be legalistic about this, but I, I would just say you need to sit under sound preaching. And here's why. In 2 Timothy 4, 1-4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's the judge, the living, and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom, this is, this is to me as a pastor, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And here's the reason why. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. If you don't sit under sound teaching, you are susceptible to be duped and to just listen to what your itching ears want to hear and to wander away. So number one, saturate yourself in the scriptures. Number two, sit under sound preaching. Here's number three, another S. Surround yourself with good resources. You need to learn to discern truth from error. Now, we've provided a lot of resources for you out there on the resource table. I mean, Table Talk Magazine is probably one of the best. We've got different books, different resources. If, if you need some resources, come to us. We will point you in the right direction. But you need to surround yourself with good resources because there's so many messages coming to you that aren't necessarily the best. You need to learn discernment. Philippians 1, 9, and 10. This was Paul's prayer for the church in Philippi. It is my prayer. Okay, Paul, what's your prayer? That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul's prayer, my prayer too, is that you would have discernment to know truth from error. You would have that discernment. Hebrews 5.14 But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil you need to have your powers of discernment trained and the way that you grow in discernment is surrounding yourself with good materials so saturate yourself in the scriptures personally that's the most important saturate yourself in the scriptures number two sit under sound preaching which you're doing every week and i'm thankful for that third surround yourself with good sources but here's fourth and this may sound very strange to you fourth study the ancient creeds and confessions you may think what Study the ancient creeds and confessions. Are, you sound like you're kind of Roman Catholic, Pastor Sean. What do you, I thought the Bible was the only thing we're supposed to study. Well, yes, the Bible alone, hear me very clearly, the Bible alone, sola scriptura, the Bible alone is the only absolute rule for faith and practice. It is the God-breathed, inerrant, inspired, authoritative Word of God. We stand on the Word of God alone. It's our only source of full, absolute authority. However, the creeds and confessions are helpful summaries of what the church has believed for hundreds and thousands of years about the scriptures. They're a collection of ancient wisdom that the body of Christ has agreed upon is summaries of the truth. And so it's very important for you to know, not just be in your own little bubble about, you know, what, what's the latest and greatest. What does the church believe for thousands of years? Now, creeds and confessions are not inspired. They're man-made documents. They're not on the same level as the Bible. But they are helpful tools that have been vetted for thousands of years that are grounded in Scripture that a wide variety of the church over different geographical areas and time periods have agreed upon as summaries of God's truth. Colossians 2, 6-8. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord... So walk in him, rooted 
and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Be rooted in what you've been taught. The catechisms and the creeds are effective ways to teach truth, especially to children. That's why we do the Baptist Catechism every week. That's why we encourage you as parents to lead your children through the catechism, the short question and answers. When was the last time you studied the Apostles' Creed? Now, some of you may get a little bit uncomfortable with this, but I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about, and this is not anything Roman Catholic. Actually, the Reformed Baptist churches have done this for years. I'm thinking about, in the near future, incorporating, not maybe every Sunday, but the recitation of some of the creeds and confessions as part of our worship. The Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed. Our, our own 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. These are useful documents that are rooted in history, rooted in truth, that help you understand summaries of Christian doctrine in, in little bite-sized ways that are easier to, to understand. Okay? So, saturate yourself in the Scriptures. Sit under sound teaching. Surround yourself with good resources. Study the ancient creeds and confessions. And here's number five. Separate yourself from false doctrine and ungodly influences. Separate yourself. Jude 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you appealing for you to contend for the faith, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Sometimes false doctrine can creep in unnoticed. It can creep in where you don't even know that you're, you're seeing it and you need to separate yourself from it. I said this yesterday. Most wolves in sheep's clothing that come in to destroy churches don't come in with a name tag that says, Hello, my name's Wolf. They sneak in. And sometimes you can be seduced into these false doctrines. And if you are, you need to immediately separate yourself from that. Because it's easy to drift. Hebrews 2.1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift. Do you wake up one day and become an atheist? No, what happens? It's a slow, methodical, imperceptible drift. You were here and now you're here, and you have no idea how you got here. So if this is true doctrine, and you're over here, and you're not really sure how you got over here, and, you, and you've been woken up this morning like, whoa, I'm over here, you need to quickly separate yourself and get back here. You need to separate yourself. You need to hate all man-made philosophies and doctrines that corrupt and twist the truth. Phil Riken says this, Orthodox Christianity, and that means correct Christianity, is not to be, and I like what he says here, is not to be reinvented, re-envisioned, or reinterpreted. Instead, it has to be cherished, guarded, and defended. So let's ask the question again. What will empower you with these two things? Remember, there's two truths here. What will empower you to be generous with God's gifts 
and what will empower you to be guardians of God's truth? And the answer is how Paul finishes the letter. Grace be with you. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that can pardon and cleanse within. We need grace upon grace upon grace. Do you realize that when God saved you, you were saved by grace? And then it just stopped, right? I'm saved by grace and I no longer need grace, right? I got my free ticket to heaven. I'm saved by grace and one day I'll see Jesus in heaven, but the rest of my life, no, you need grace every second of your life. You need saving grace and you need sustaining grace. And notice how Paul ends it. Grace be with y'all. That's literally how it says it. For those of you Texans and Southerners here, that's what the Greek says, y'all. You guys for us. Coloradans. It's in the plural. Now you'd think that Paul would be writing just to Timothy. Grace be to you, Timothy. I'm writing this to you. Well, yes, Paul's writing this to Timothy, but the reason he ends with grace be to y'all or grace be to you guys is because this is to be read to the entire church. It's not just to Timothy. It's not it's it's a pastoral epistle written to Timothy, but the implications are for the, the entire church. And so what do we need more than anything else? We need grace. I don't know about you, but every day I wake up, I got three enemies coming at me hot. The world, the flesh, the devil. They come at me every day. I don't know about you, but they come at me every day. And in order to combat that, I need grace. You see, we read the Bible, and we're very clear what God expects of us. Okay, we know that we need to be generous with our time, talents, and treasures. We know that we need to be guardians of the truth. We know we need to hold fast to sound doctrine. We know we should be praying. We know we should be a healthy church. We know we should have godly leadership. We know as men, we know we should lead our families and be be the spiritual leaders of our families. Women, you know that you need to be godly examples. We know all this stuff. Here, the problem is not that we know these things. What's the problem? We know these things. (laughs) And we know that we fall short of doing them. So we need grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 19, but he said to me, Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly on my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We need grace. So as we close the chapter on 1 Timothy, and we bring this book to a close, and we move forward as individuals in a church, we must rely on God's grace. His power made perfect in weakness. As we sang earlier, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. And may my only boast be in him. So as we leave this morning, as God's people, let's be generous with God's gifts. And let's be guardians of God's truth. And let's do it all for the glory of God and by his grace alone. Are you with me? Amen. Do we need grace?
Amen. Let's rely upon grace upon grace this week and all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. We are so weak and frail and sinful and lazy and wayward at times. And Lord, sometimes we even wonder if we're saved because of what we do. And Lord, we can look inside of ourselves for the answer. Try harder. Be a better person. Do better the next time. But Lord, for every look at self, we need to take a hundred looks at you. Jesus, you're our only source of hope. You're our only source of grace. And so what we need, Lord Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit is grace. It's nothing we can produce. It's nothing we deserve. It's simply your gracious gift to us every moment of every day. So Lord, my prayer for us this morning as we leave this place is we would not walk out of here thinking we can live the Christian life in our own strength, but that we would be dependent upon grace. The Lord, we would be generous. It's hard to be generous because, Lord, we are stingy. We are selfish. It's hard to be generous. And so, Lord, we need grace deep in our hearts to give us that generosity. Lord, we want to be guardians of the truth. Lord, we want to be sound in our theology. We want to hold fast to the truth. We want to saturate ourselves in Scripture and, and be, be men and women and boys and girls who hold fast to the truth. And that's going to require grace. Because there's so many falsehoods out there and there's so many things pulling us away. So, Lord, we need grace grace alone and you're our only source Jesus and that was most powerfully demonstrated when you died in our place on the cross that's amazing grace that we've been singing about our chains are gone we've been set free thank you Jesus for your grace We desperately need it. May we never think that we're alone. Lord, help us remember that we're together. We're a church family. We're walking this path together. We're not alone. Lord, there may be people here that are struggling. Struggling in their walk. Struggling in in finances. Struggling with maybe depression. Or, Lord, struggling with a relationship. Lord, I don't want anybody to think that they're alone. Lord, we're a family. We're the church of the living God. The pillar and buttress of the truth. Let us walk hand in hand together as brothers and sisters. And when one of us stumbles, let's quickly come and help the other one up. Those that are weak, Shepherd them and encourage them. Lord, help us walk hand in hand together by your grace with all of our eyes fixed upon you. We love you, Jesus. We need you, Jesus. We honor you, Jesus. May we leave this place encouraged because we have been recipients of grace and we will continue to be because you're such a good God. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.